This is Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier on the Big Talker KQAM. Welcome into Kansas Talk. It is a Saturday morning. Good Saturday morning to you. Thanks for hanging out with us today, trying to kick you into gear, get you up and moving for the weekend the way we do every single weekend right here on the program here on the Big Talker. 1480 AM, 102.5 FM, KQAM. I am Andy Hoosier. Thanks for joining us today. All presented by Phil's Coins, 9344 West Central Avenue. Buying, selling, trading with honesty and integrity. For all your gold and silver needs, it's Phil's Coins. Also online at philscoins.com. They open up in just about a half an hour from now, and they'll be open until 2.30 this afternoon. A big show lined up for you today. It's going to be a fun one. Make sure to stay tuned in the entire program, as usual. And we appreciate all of our guests. In hour number two, Alan Cobb, Kansas Chamber of Commerce. He'll be joining us to talk about the unemployment rate, the labor shortage, all that good stuff, how the economy's rebounding after COVID-19. But right now, and we have not done this in a while, and these guys have been in the news quite a bit lately with all the big shenanigans going on at the county level, but we get our uh, our our monthly, almost monthly update from the Sedgwick County Commission. As we have in studio with us, the man himself, Sedgwick County Commissioner, Mr. Jim Howell. Jim, it's good to talk to you again, my friend. Well, it's, um, it's really great to be here, Andy. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to chat, although you guys have been under scrutiny, under pressure with what's going on right now with all the news with the EMS, the shortage. Now, is, is, let's do some backstory on this a little bit. The EMS shortage that we're hearing about in the news right now, the the short amount of time or the lack of short amount of time that we have with EMS responding to different calls. Is this part of the labor shortage we're seeing with COVID-19? Has this been going on a while? Let's talk about the history leading up to this point. I love that question. Thank you for the thank you for that. Listen, um, that's a convenient narrative that uh, some people I work with would like to just say it's about the pipeline. People aren't going into the career field, and that's why we have a shortage. You'll see that everywhere across the nation. Uh, this is about COVID, um, and this is about pay. Those are the three convenient narratives. But the reality is people go into this knowing what the pay is going to be. I mean, every police officer knows about what the pay is going to be. Every school teacher knows about what the pay is going to be. You can't right. get in the field after you spent two hours training and say, well, the pay is my problem. That's why I'm quitting and going to go to another <laughs> very similar job if it's about the same kind of pay. I mean, right. that doesn't make sense. And this whole thing started really before COVID. In other words, before March of 2020, this attrition issue was was hot. I mean, it was already happening okay. by that time. And, of course, the pipeline, let me go backwards. Uh, before uh, uh, the September of 2018, we never had openings in Sedgwick County. I say never. I mean, somebody would retire, we would fill that job immediately immediately with a waiting list sure so this idea we had a uh, recruit a recruitment problem that was really not true i mean other places may have recruitment issues but since we were the best in the nation we could almost take our pick of people and people would climb over climb over each other to come here in fact i talked to one person in april she said that uh, when she applied for the job she was one of about a dozen people applying for the job and she she always wanted to work for central county ems and when the position opened up, she she really wanted to get this job really badly, and she competed for that, and she was surprised she got the job. But that's that was the culture back then. Mm. And so right now today, we have 21 openings for par- paramedics. And that may not be the whole story because we have about another roughly 20 position open, 20 positions open for EMTs. I don't know, I don't know the exact numbers today, but uh, last time I did the calculation for a full-time equivalent, full-time equivalent uh, staff, it was around 32 people. And it's actually gone up even since then. So wow. probably getting close to 35 or maybe even 40 people we're short right now. And some of the people that we do have, uh, although they may be a, a, a credentialed paramedic, they're not ready to be a lead medic. In other words, they can't take an ambulance out on the streets by themselves because they haven't been here long enough to know 
our system here. So um, it does require any given day to to fully run the trucks. We need about 64 fully qualified lead medic paramedics in Sedgwick County. We don't have that any longer. In fact, we just lost another one yesterday. Um, So uh, this is a problem and uh, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. And I, I, and I, and I raised the flag. I actually started working on, working on this about two years ago. Uh, there's a lot of history on how we got here, and uh, it didn't happen overnight. It happened, uh, I, in my opinion, a number of bad decisions were made, um, and the the consequences we we could have predicted even back then that this was going to happen. In fact, uh, it might be interesting to the to the audience to hear that that I think uh, in, across this entire nation, there's about 31,000 EMS organizations. Now, some of those are fire slash you know ambulance organizations. Some of those are privatization you know, private organizations like AMR. Um, there's all kinds of models out there, but one of the really common models is what we had in Central County for 46 years. That's where we have an EMS organization led by a director, and separately from that, we have an office of the medical director, which is a physician that gives, if you will, training and medical oversight, technical oversight, uh, to make sure that the skills being provided for patient care actually are qualified under the medical license of that physician. That's That's the model we had for 46 years, and then in 20. 2019, they decided to change it uh, experimentally, thought this would be good for Sedgwick County to move, to move this to a merged organization. We would now be one of five in the nation. And I would argue that in the other, other ones that are like that, uh, one of those is Greenville, South Carolina, for example. They, they had a, a petition, much like the one you'll see in our community that's uh, making a call here to, to change our leadership. That, that petition in that community uh, exists because they had problems in their their merged you know physician led organization so it didn't work there and in, in the five of these that are in this nation right now none of them are working well and so uh, I think it was experimental at best it what we were warned by the employees this wasn't going to work and uh, sure enough we kind of ignored them and went forward anyway now why, what's the issue with it working this way it is just like an operational standpoint management standpoint just kind of uh, too big of an umbrella to handle different departments I mean what's what's wrong with it now well I you know I, again on, on paper you know consolidation sounds kind of sexy we like the idea of you know small limited government but we've actually added about almost 20 percent more budget to our EMS wow. just in the last five years. So wait, we're going up in expense, we're, but we're going down in quality. And we went up about eleven, <laughs> about eleven percent in our in our in our employments. Our employment numbers went up about eleven percent in the same time frame. By the way, our call volume also went up. But here's the funny thing: is we have less ambulances on the street now than we've ever had. Wow. Now it's hard to explain that, isn't it? But, yeah. Um, so we're not we're not like we're providing better services for less money. In fact, we're we're, we're providing less services for more money. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly a total failure, in my opinion. It's time for us to, to analyze this and maybe go back the other way. We know what worked, and it worked very well. And this, this is an experiment that I think that we, we knew from the beginning that it wasn't going to work. I think some of us were suspicious it wasn't going to work. Now, on paper, if you get just exactly the right person to lead that organization that's qualified to be the, med, you know, to be the physician that has really, really good interpersonal inter, uh, management skills of running a, a people organization, then on, you know, in, on paper, yeah, theoretically, it might be a good situation. But... That's a combination of skill set that's really hard to find. And I think what happens is generally we find people who meet the the technical requirements of having a physician's license, but they may not have the skill set to manage a larger organization of people. And I think, again, looking backwards, I think that may be part of what's going on here. We, we have, you know, we have great leaders. We have great um, commanders. We have good people in, in our training department. And all, we have good people all across the organization. But... Um, 
unfortunately, there's a lot of other things that tie into this. I can't go into any details here because I'm not allowed to talk about personnel issues, but I'll just say that there's a lot of other parts of this that makes it even more complicated. So, Mm. you know, organizationally, I think this was a bad idea. Um, Could it work on paper? It looks like it's a good idea, but in in practice, it doesn't seem to work anywhere. Yeah. And so uh, I think my opinion is, and I I mentioned this from the bench Wednesday when I spoke at the BOCC meeting, I'm calling uh, I'm calling my colleagues to support this. I think that this is the right thing to do. And the county manager needs to make a decision to split the organization back up the way it was. Let's get some, the, the highest quality leaders we can find of the organization, whether that's people that are in place right now or place, you know, people that we can find that would maybe do doing things differently. That's for him to figure out. But the reality is I know that that model works and that, that that's what needs to happen. We need to move backwards. The other places you said there's like five or six places around the country that have this type of system that we move to. How are they doing? Are they coming into the same issues and running into the same problems that we have? Are they doing things a little bit differently? What's what's the difference between what we're doing and what they're doing? Well, I don't know the I don't know the detailed answer exactly what each one of them is doing, but I can just say that that uh, they tried to to uh, you know do this uh, single organization where a physician is essentially leading the EMS side of the organization. It's just that particular model for some reason. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It hasn't hasn't really worked well. And so it's weird. I think that's, to me, that's the, again, I'm not talking about the people specifically that are involved. I'm talking about the organizational structure. The structure is not the right structure in my opinion. So let's be clear. I'm not talking about the personalities. Now that's, that's a whole nother subject we could get into. No, it's just how the formula works. It's about the structure. And, And it ties into other things like, if you talk to these talk to these medics, they talk about protocols. Well, what does that mean? They get out to a scene and there's a, a situation where someone needs patient care. They have a formula. It's like a flow chart. Tells them exactly what to do and exactly what medicines to give them, and on it goes. Those flow, those flow charts have been changed. The protocols have been changed. They don't have the guidelines they had before. They they don't either, either they don't have access to them or they've been in their terms changed in such a way they're they're no longer responsibility or accountability in these flow charts because they're they are not objective. They're not clearly defined as to what to do. So, they, so now we have outdated structure on on like what to do in actual proper training or proper yeah. procedure. They don't. Know, they're just kind of going out there with the blind and trying to figure it out as they go. Actually, and it's maybe even worse than that because even though they're operating under a physician's license, um, it doesn't necessarily tell them exactly how much medicine and which kind of medicine to provide the patient. <laughs> that's not good, right? It used to, but now it doesn't, and that's that's a problem. Even having access to the protocols. That's even changed because the software is not working the way it should, and that type of thing is frustrating. We, you know, there's there's a lot of things we could say about this, but at the end of the day, uh, we have great people in the organization. I, I respect them. I want them to to uh, I want them to be happy at work. I want them to to like where they work. I want them to be excited to go to work. Uh, we should show respect to them and, and support them with reasonable pay and good accommodations, good workplace, good workplace. Uh, facilities. We shouldn't make them work 18 hours a day. We shouldn't make them work from call to call to call. Yeah. They shouldn't feel like they have to stay, you know, stay two hours after their shift to get the reports caught up so they can leave for the night. Um, some of these folks are, I talked to one last week, this guy worked two 18 hour shifts back to back. Now bear in mind, they're driving a six ton ambulance down the street, actually right. more than that. They're about, you know, a 14,000 pound truck, uh, driving it down the street, you know, sometimes lights and siren trying to save someone's life. And they're on their 18th hour of the day. 
That's not okay. Well, you can't think straight, too, if you're going to an emergency situation where someone needs medical care on stopping an artery from bleeding, from having a heart attack, some type of issue. If you're working 18 hours a day, you're not, I mean, your mind's going to be foggy and going to be clogged, and you're you're not going to be able to think clearly on how to properly help somebody in a dire life or death situation. That's a scary thought. And these folks feel like they can't really just leave because if they leave, they're leaving this this, this system in in more dire straits. So they feel like they have to stay. Wow. And that's, you know, that's what we're, these are good people. I, lo- I love them. They're great. You know, they, they're really committed to helping patients. They're committed to this job. It's not, they'll tell you, it's not about pay. That's not what's going on here. It's about other, other issues. And so, um, the story, you probably saw it in the news, but about 130 or so paramedics and EMTs met with our management and they laid out a lot of reasons as to why they're upset and frustrated. And again, I can't get into the details here, but, but those are serious matters. And then, which, which that's what caused this. You probably heard that in the last six or seven weeks, there's been a investigation going on in the organization that needed to happen, obviously. And it, it's, it's almost to the conclusion at this point, we're going to get that hopefully in the next, you know, either probably any day now, I don't know what day we'll get it exa- exactly, but there'll be some information in there in there. Hopefully will help us make some decisions, you know, hopefully to bring this organization back into a healthy status. But the reality is I've got plenty of data. You know, I've got so much data. I've talked to, I've talked to, I've talked to practically everybody. Yeah. And I've been studying the issue for a couple of years now. Um, this is, this didn't just happen overnight. You know, we've, we've had plenty of data to not let it get to this point. And so I, I'm, I have to say, I am very disappointed that, uh, you know, I'm just one commissioner. I don't have any power by myself, obviously, but I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that, you know, my colleagues or the management, whoever we've, we've known this has been, imploding for a while and we, we allowed it to get to this point one of those kicking the can down the road I think until it's you actually terrible. had to you know yeah. again we lost another two people just this week already and i'm thinking you know it can't get it can't get much worse or can it i hope it can't because uh, we we just can't afford it any longer and we've got to get this thing back on its feet so i i, I use the word crisis this is an urgent issue yeah it's a crisis i i'm scared for some people i drove by two accidents I, I drove across town yesterday i passed two accidents on the highway Separate accidents, different, you know, miles apart. Yeah. Both of them, police officers standing there, people laying on the ground, and no ambulances in sight. That's not okay. That's not okay. No, that's a scary thought. We'll got to take a break here. We'll continue this conversation when we come back. What we can do, kind of what's going on, and and uh, I love how the media's kind of tied this into the other labor shortage that's going on because of COVID and stuff right now as well, and just kind of well, you know, it's it's happening all at the same time, and that's the way some are trying to play it off. So we'll continue this conversation when we come back. Cedric County Commissioner Jim Howell. We'll talk about the EMS shortage going on, how we fix that, plus the mill levy. You guys raising taxes and property taxes and stuff with the uh, budget that's going on and you guys voted on some of that this week too so we'll cover everything going on within the county this hour here on candace talk right here on the big talker 1480 am 1025 fm kqam lots coming up stay right here Welcome back into Kansas Talk right here on the Big Talker, KQAM, Saturday morning. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Always great to have you along for the ride, as always. Sedgwick County Commissioner Jim Howell in studio. Big news with the county commission trying to figure out this EMS issue, and it sounds more like the structural problem that we have internally, just the operational way that things are running. 
there. I, I, as I mentioned going into the break, I found it kind of ironic how the media, when they've talked about this, it's just uh, they ran the story a couple a week or two ago about, well, look at all of these jobs that are available within the county as a whole, all these administrative positions and all this and all. So, you know, the EMS thing, it's just part of that. It's just part of the, this overall shortage of workers for the uh, for the county as well. But as you mentioned, this goes a lot deeper than that. Well, there is a, there is a hint of truth to that. I mean, there is. It's, you'll see it in the private sector anyway. Uh, you know, restaurants can't find workers on, on it goes. We see this all around us. We do have some large number of openings in 911 and calm care and the, and the jail deputies and things like that. We've got positions open in the county. And of course, the, the convenient narrative, or of course, is we don't pay enough. And that's really the problem. And so something how COVID's the problem. We don't pay enough. Look, I, I agree. We want to be competitive in our pay. We really have to be. But... Um, they don't really consider benefits in that discussion for some reason, but I'll just tell you that uh, um, we have to also look at exit interviews. I've been I've been talking about this for a long time. Right? Mm. If you don't talk to the people that are leaving and find out why they're leaving, yeah, then, then you can just guess all day long. You'll never know. Yeah, it's true. But it's a convenient narrative when we we have these large attrition rates that exceed, the, you know, what would be expected. You know, what's happening in the private sector? What's happening all around us? If those numbers are average to everybody else, then I guess there may not be a problem, but when things are excessive, that's a sign there's something else going on, and we ought to we ought to investigate those things seriously. And I think that uh, when someone says we have the same problem in some other department, look, my attention will be turned to there next. I'm yeah. telling you that if the manager or whoever's not going to investigate and find these problems out, the commissioner's got to get involved. Then I guess that's what we'll have to do. The reality is there are things going on in the workplace that need to be figured out. I mean, it's not always pay. It's sometimes other things. And so it's convenient for us to say it's pay, but sometimes it's not pay. Well, it goes a lot deeper. And as you mentioned, I mean, as a county commissioner, your job is to make sure that with all the taxpayer money coming in, I know government struggles with this, but your job is to make sure that things are spent to be done efficiently. So what our whatever our taxpayer money is going to do, especially in a local community like this, we want to make sure the, uh, the programs are running efficiently and operational-wise and make sure that things are done the way it needs to. So when we make a phone call that we pay our taxpayer money for for help, that we actually get a proper response because we have right now, uh, what was the stat that like uh, we want uh, EMS to respond within a nine minute time frame of a call and we don't hit that really at all now? Like we're struggling with that, aren't we? Well, we are. And uh, some of that's by design. You know, we went from two paramedics and an ambulance down to one paramedic and an EMT. No offense to EMTs, but they have about one fourth of the training as a paramedic. Mm. And so we've actually intentionally lost skill set that's on that ambulance. And we went from 21 ambulances as our goal for the day down to 19. We went from a nine-minute target in the urban part of the county uh, down to 11 minutes, which is a different standard. But even on the 11-minute standard, we're not, we're not meeting that one either. So, uh, yeah, the, these are the, – the, the system is obviously objectively de, de, is degrade, is degraded today in any way you want to look at it. Yeah. Um, pay is an issue. We only get to adjust the budget once a year typically. And uh, this year in the 22 budget, which is starts in January, we're actually contemplating a potentially almost $11 million increase in salary across, the, across this organization. That's wow. historic. That's never happened before. Yeah. So we're going to de- deal with pay, but that's not, we, again, I'll argue that's not going to solve problems. If there's other things going on in the workplace, you can throw all the pay at it you want to. Yeah. These problems will continue. 
It's going to be an ongoing issue. I know you guys are working on it. We'll get some more updates on that here in just a minute. We'll take a bottom of the hour break. When we come back, I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about the budget. I know the COVID relief money that you guys got in as well, kind of what the plans are for some of that stuff, as well as the mill levy increase that potentially we heard throughout the media as well this week. So you guys have been busy. County meetings, county stuff going on. We'll get all that information and more right here around the corner, right here on Candace Talk on the Big Talker, 1480 AM, 102.5 FM, KQAM. It's a Saturday morning. Let's get you up and moving for the day. Lots more coming up here with Cedric County Commissioner Jim Howell. Stay here. You're listening to Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back into Kansas Talk right here on the Big Talker, 1480 AM, 1025 FM, KQAM. Thanks for hanging out with us today, Saturday morning, all presented by Phil's Coins. They're officially open right now, 9344 West Central Avenue, buying, selling, and trading with honesty and integrity for all your gold and silver needs. Really the guy that has all of the silver in the Mid-America region because you can't get it anywhere else with the hot market that's actually happening right now because of, oh, I don't know, the devaluing of the dollar just because people have money to invest or whatever the case is. But you can check them out, 9344 West Central Avenue. Also on the web, the interweb at philscoins.com. Another segment here with Cedric County Commissioner Jim Howells. We talk about the EMS issue and how we fix that. Let's shift gears just for a minute, though, and let's talk about the budget. I know that's kind of a discussion now going into the fall time, as it is for every government size entity across the across the country. But we have mill levy issue. We guys got, what, close to $100 million from COVID relief, didn't you? Yeah, those are actually kind of unrelated. The $100 million is, you know, based on Joe Biden's America's recovery plan. <laughs> we call it ARPA money. Yeah, uh, we, that money has uh, some things that can be spent on, but it can't be spent for anything we want. It has some guidelines, all strings attached, as usually as usual federal yeah. money has. And so um, we're trying to figure this out. Uh, obviously, a lot of this money is going to end up going to the private sector. We're going to give that money away. I think we're not, we don't have needs in the county for testing and for staff uh, for immunizations. We don't need PPE. We don't need. And you don't uh, need to expand the size of government. We don't need that stuff, but, yeah. but we're going to spend that money and, and it's going to be for things like, I mean, just throw some nice ideas out. Broadband out to Western Sedgwick County mm. because they might have to go on a Zoom call, for example. Sure. So there's a justification there. And uh, maybe, uh, maybe it'd be some businesses out there that are going to provide some kind of new service, you know, some kind of a thing they need, you know, that's somehow there's a loose connection back to COVID in some way. Um, there's actually, there, there, there's a lot of creative people out there trying to figure out all kinds of ways to, to make an argument that, hey, this is a COVID thing. And uh, they're going to tap some of that money. And I'll tell you, tell you right now, yeah. I would just get it. I'm going to tell you, I'll bet there's about a billion dollars worth of requests for $100 million. Um, I need free license plates for my car because, yeah. I mean, it's COVID. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'll COVID. tell you, this is frustrating because, uh, you know, government, in my opinion, normally identifies a need first, then they find the funding second. Yes. This time we're just throwing money out there and saying, now what are we going to do with it? We have no idea. We're going to... Sp- it's almost like a it's almost like a, a Christmas present. Yeah. Like, how do you want to spend your money this year? And so much. I mean, the I city got a massive amount. The school board it's got a massive right. amount. You guys did. I've, I've never seen so much money be flown around before. And it's because they spent so much at the federal level. They don't know what to do with it. So they're just giving it out. Here, government entity, do something as you will. It's it's obviously political. And I wish I wish that the uh, the states would would stand up and say to the government, the federal government, you know what? 
that your money is 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 uh, too late for COVID, you know, and just to spend money because you can. This money doesn't really. They're printing the money. It doesn't really. There's no. There's nothing behind it. It's a, it's a hundred percent debt. It goes on a great 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 grandkids yep. responsibility. Of course, we all know the truth is it'll never be paid. Yeah. And so this is just absolute total irresponsibility. Is there any way to turn it away and just say we don't want it? Well, we could, but you know what? They're not going to not. They're not going to. I just say this. Every every single government it. out there has got their hands out. Yeah. Including us, and of course. Honestly, as, as stupid as this is, we're all going to have our hands out. We're all going to take the money. Yeah. Because if you don't, they're going to give it away anyway. Sure. You're not reducing it. It's not going to help anything. No, of course not. So we're taking the money. And, you know, this last $100 million in the middle of COVID when, when the Trump administration provided that money, we were in the middle of a pandemic. And we needed the money for PPE and for testing and for immunizations and for, you know, businesses and all kinds of things. It was, it was incredibly useful at that time. We we're in the middle of a pandemic and we needed the money then. This right. is different. Yeah, we don't. <laughs> we're just trying to figure out how to spend it, and we. And again, you wouldn't believe the people coming out and saying, "I got an idea for a building. I have an idea for a sewer line. I have an idea." For, it's just, it's unbelievable to me. Yeah. So um, you say you're going to get kind of give it away. I mean, is it going to be more of uh, helping out small business from the last year that is still kind of struggling, trying to reopen back up? Is that kind of what we're looking at? I don't. I'll tell you what. I think a, a portion of it will go to business, but in terms of trying to combat some type of COVID damage or a COVID thing. I don't know how you make the argument exactly, but I'll tell you, the last $100 million roughly was split about a third, third, and third. A third of it went towards schools and governments. A third of it went towards the county needs in terms of actually providing pandemic-type related stuff. And a third of it went towards businesses. Hmm. That's a loose split of the money. This one, I think it's going to be more for the private sector, more for business, more for projects. You know, Maybe there's a road. To, I don't know. We're going to find reasons to spend the money. I don't think very much of this is going to go to Central County at all. I think this is going to be mostly good. for the private sector. But, you know, uh, That's a good it'll, thing. Be, it'll be in our budget. We're going to, we're going to ex- accept it. We're going to have to scrutinize the heck out of how we spend it out because the taxpayers are responsible. We spend yeah. this wrong. we got to pay it back with property tax dollars. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I was really worried because that's what government usually likes to do is, oh, we have this money. Let's expand these highway projects. Let's build another building. Let's expand the administrative state and do it, you know, make our jobs easier by loosening the load and being able to hire on more people. But it's a one-time payment. Once it's gone, we have to figure out how to maintain that in the long run. So I'm glad that type of discussion well, is not on the plate right now. I'm glad you brought that up because there is a temptation for county management and some of my, some of my people I work with that where they want to use some of this one-time money for operations. In other words, for some type of a propping up of some salaries. But once you create that appetite, once you hire people, and you, for example, they want to use the money for some mental health stuff, mm. a building and some, when you hire that staff and you create these positions, when the money runs out, you've got now, and you've got to find another way right. to fund those things. And they want to pretend, you know, potentially fund EMS. Again, I love the idea of giving them more money. I love that. They deserve it. Right. You know, a lot of these folks in the public safety world, they deserve more money. I, I wish I could give them more. They deserve it. I would, but, but the reality is if you do it with COVID money, with this $100 million, what do you do when that money runs out? Now you've got another problem. So um, we're going to have to uh, find a way not to, uh, in my opinion, not to rely on one-time money for operations. That's just, to me, it's just nonsense. Yeah, I mean, the only way I could see it for operations is if you cease the current spending to kind of, you know, delay some of the stuff that we have to expend on and actually use that to cover it for six months or a year or whatever, and then we continue with our payments, kind of give ourselves a break. But to expand it, it would be a really stupid, dangerous thing to do. Yeah, of course. Well, I, th- I think it's time for the government to stop their insanity. <laughs> you know, the government, you know, take That's you know, a people, work in progress there. People, you know, people, you know, you talk about property taxes just to, you know, you kind of get a segue into that topic, but. 
you know, everybody seems like they want a government that's irresponsible. They want the government to provide all kinds of services and stuff. They like all the stuff, but they don't want to pay for it. Right. Look, I don't care what side of this coin you want to be on. If you want more stuff, then you got to pay for it. If you exactly. don't want, then you don't want to pay for more stuff, then you shouldn't have for it. You should have more stuff. Don't don't expect more stuff without more taxes. I mean, yep. you had, but the federal government somehow this has disconnected these two ideas. Yeah. They want to provide more stuff and not you know, not do more taxes. It's insanity. Yeah. It's destroying this country from the inside because of insane policies of the federal government. We can't do that in the county government. We actually have to balance the budget. Um, and so you talk about a tax increase. I do want to get into that because Senate Bill 13, God bless Karen Tyson. She's running for uh, uh, state treasurer, if you don't know that. But she passed, she helped pa- wrote, write and pass a bill called Senate Bill 13. And basically it establishes what's called revenue neutral rate. So what they mean, uh, we talk about tax increase. And I have to ask, ask someone, what do you mean by tax increase? A lot of politicians will say, well, I didn't raise the mill levy. Well, you know, we were all smarter than that. Assessed value went up. So if you get the same dollars, you kind of need to lower the mill levy, don't you think? Yep. And so this Senate Bill 13 kind of gets to that idea. It it establishes a calculation called the revenue neutral rate. And so based on that calculation, so we we go to last year's dollars and this year's, last year's tax dollars, this year's assessed value, and you divide it out and say the mill levy to create the same dollars would be this. Right. It's a different number. And now anything above that, or anything would be a tax would be increase. a tax increase, right? So let me give you the numbers. We have we have targeted twenty nine point three five nine mills in Sedgwick County for almost every year I've been a commissioner. Sure, um, that's been useful because it helps us keep that mill levy rate flat without that guideline without that guardrail. And probably would have gone up, and so it's been a good thing for the taxpayers. But last year we had a, a, a minor technical adjustment. It actually raised that mill levy after we got all done with passing the budget. The county clerk through the appeals process of the county appraiser and stuff, they raised the mill levy 0.017 mills higher than that number. So whatever that number turned out to be. So this year's the revenue neutral rate would be a 1.01 mill decrease below our target of 29.359. I'm getting kind of wonky here. But one mill, 1.01 mills is roughly about six, about $5.7 million in Central County, okay. roughly. Now, everybody, everybody in government should say, well, what's one mill generate in your jurisdiction? For Sedgwick County government, one mill right now generates about, about $5.7 million. Okay. So I tell you, for us to do revenue neutral and property taxes, we would need to lower the mill levy rate by about 1.01 mills. Well, that's not what's in front of us right now. We have what's called a last update. We had to pass, if you will, a, a resolution saying we can pass a budget that goes up to, let me pick a number, 29.359 mills, as we have in the past, which would be an increase of about five point, roughly seven million dollars in tax revenue, property tax revenue, and again, what they don't say in that language is it's actually about a one point zero one mil increase above that revenue neutral rate. Now, it is a point one, it's a point zero one seven mil levy reduction from last year. So, ask a politician: is that a tax increase? Mm. To the taxpayer, is it a tax increase? Yes, it is. Right. We raise more tax dollars, it's a tax increase. Yes. That's what Senate Bill 13 says. So we have to notify the taxpayers through a mailing. Now, that mailing's not required this year because we didn't really have a way to get there this year. The, the legislature gave us a way out this year. We're going to do it on the on the uh, online portal or whatever. You can go up and look it up. You can see what's going on. But next year and the year following that, the state's going to pay for a mailing, about $150,000 each mailing uh, next two years. And then the year after that, actually next year, it's in our budget. We have to pay for it and the state will pay us back. 
then twenty twenty three, the same thing will happen. Then after that, twenty twenty four and on, it's on us. Right. We got to pay that hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars. Taxpayers will have to pay for that themselves. So uh, I, I think someone in the in the in the Senate hearing said this. They said, "Look, would you be willing to pay the government a dollar for you to be notified of your tax increases so that you can engage those politicians before they do that?" I think it's worth a dollar. Sure. So that $150,000 in cost of mailing this is probably worth it. The taxpayers will agree to that. Um, now let's talk about what is a $1 million, what's, what, what's a $1 mil increase to your average taxpayer? I, I, I do want to break it down because they say, well, that sounds like a lot. Well, it's about $11.50, $11.50 tax, new, new tax dollars on a $100,000 house. Per $100,000. So if you have a $200,000 house, that's $23. Sure. And vice versa, you can just do the linear math there. But 11, so one mil is $11.50, roughly a dollar a month okay. uh, tax increase on a $100,000 home. So if you have a, a million dollar home, it's be, it'd be 10 times that on, on, on it goes. And you can just do the linear math there. But in the fire department, the fire district, we call it, um, it's about a 0.46 mil increase. And so again, it's about actually, uh, yeah, it's around, it's around uh, you know, it's around $5 a year tax increase on, in the fire district on a $100,000 house. So if you live in the country and you're in the fire district, you're going to get a roughly a $12 increase on the, on the county side and a $5 increase on the fire district side, about a $17 tax increase altogether. Um, yeah, that's more money to government. Now, the question is, is that justifiable? Well, fuel's about $3 a gallon now, right? Right. And insurance went up about a half million dollars for our employees, and on it goes. And our ta- our, I just mentioned $11 million for salary increases because we can't compete with the private sector. We've got to, we have to provide services. That, I don't know how you, I don't know how you not pay the employees. If you can't fill the jobs with your, what you're willing to pay in your last budget, you've got to adjust those numbers. You only have one chance a year. So $11 million adjustment in our salary this year. That's never been done before. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think some increase is reasonable. The question is, is it too much? Is it, is it the right amount? Some people are just mad and says, government should live in last year's dollars forever. Well, I don't think that makes sense either. Because again, even your, think about yourself, everything costs more for you. Cost more for government. Inflation well. hits government as much as it does, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're we're for limited government. We're for a limited amount of money, as you had mentioned before, to find projects based on the money coming in instead of just having money overflowing. But at the same time, if you're trying to hire people to do services, it's got to be competitive so that way people actually enti- – they're not going to go and do $8 an hour to go and try no. and save somebody's life every day. No, of course not. Yeah. And, and again, if you want someone to – you want someone to provide that that life's, you know, life-saving skill set to put their own lives in, you know, in danger, it seems a little bit weird to be paying them 13 bucks an hour. Yeah. You know, this doesn't sound right, does it? And I think, you know, these are these are people who spent, you know, two years of their life to get the credential to, to provide that, provide that to service to the people. You know, you can go out to McDonald's and make 15 bucks an hour now. Right. Why are we paying our, our, our safe public safety folks less than that? They go through a lot of training. You know, they go through a lot of training and we do, and we, our lives depend on them. Yeah. And whether we, whether we exercise that need today, we know it's there. We want them to be available. And again, if we don't provide a reasonable amount of salary, we're not going to be able to compete because they'll just go someplace else. Right now, Oklahoma City's paying twenty thousand dollars bonuses to, to to lure our EMS professionals away. Yeah. So again, if you have a workplace, you know, frustrations here, and they're paying that much more there, we can't keep them. Can't do that. So we've got to we've got to do something here. So yeah, it's a big problem. And um, yeah, the 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 budget overall, by the way, about one third of our budget's property taxes, two thirds of the budget's other things, and so altogether the. Entire budget's growing to about $23 million this year, which is huge. Uh, we're going to be just under a five, just under a half billion dollar budget sure. when we get done with the, the passing this year's budget. So that's huge. That is big. Yeah. But you think about it, we also have 
half a billion, or else I have half a million people who live here in Sedgwick County. Sure. So what's that work out to? You know, is, are you happy with the government that you get? On <laughs> average, two thirds of the money comes from grants and, and 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 service fees. One third of the money comes from property taxes or sales taxes. And you think about that, you know, five hundred million dollars for five hundred thousand people. That's what ten dollars per person yeah. for all the county government. I did that math right? Maybe my math was off a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, like, whatever it is. But my point is, it's you get a lot. You get. Uh, I'm sure my math was off there. That's no, right. But regard, I mean, you're never going to appease everybody with government either. People are going to say you're too small and need to grow for everything, and people are going to say you're too big either. So it's trying to find that happy balance between those. We got just a couple minutes left here. But uh, budget wise, as you guys do work on this, did we come into this year with a shortage in the county budget because of COVID? And the way things were this last year, or did uh, in some of the hundred million dollars coming in from COVID, is that going to maybe compensate for the shortage or a debt that we had from the last year? Or did we do okay coming out um, out of out of the last year with COVID? Well, um, I think everything came out pretty well, actually. Okay, um, that's good. Yeah, it did. I think the Sedgwick County really did things well at the end of the day. I mean, there was a lot of challenges to get to the, get through all that. But I think at the end of the day, things that actually turned out about as good as you can expect. I mean, I think we, we did okay. That's good news. I really like that. Um, last couple of things here as we kind of wrap up, but with summertime right now, are you guys seeing more activity? I know you guys have really focused on not only the COVID thing and follow the numbers and, and the tracking of that stuff, but with the reopening of the economy right now and people getting back to work, wanting to go travel, wanting to do stuff. Uh, there was the news, of course, the slight increase in COVID-19 cases is there talks as of right now? Is there any concern of the Delta variant of increasing COVID cases of potentially bringing more mandates back? Uh, or is there a certain oh, threshold we have to hit for something like that? Oh, to happen? I don't think so. Right now, again, the hospital situation is driving everything. And I'll tell you, it, you know, and Andy, you and I are probably going to agree, agree to disagree on this one, but <laughs> every single person in the hospital, I think with almost zero exception, is unvaccinated. We have about 40 people in the hospital right now, about half them on ICU. Um, the numbers are going up. They're trending upward slowly. Uh, the Delta variant is uh, now becoming the prevalent uh, variant here. You know, the prevalent COVID risk in Sedgwick County is becoming the Delta. Now, the Delta is more more uh, communicable, but the the risks of getting significant life threatening symptoms is seems to be a little bit less. Yeah. But when more people start getting that, our numbers again they're still climbing. Even at the hospitals, they're climbing back up again. So. Uh, but in terms of trying to clamp down with a health order, I don't think there's anybody here that has the interest in doing that. I, I think that's Good. that would be an extreme, an extreme approach to this. Case. By the way, I think that for the vast majority of people who are uh, have antibodies through infection or have, have had the have had the vaccine, this Delta variant really isn't a risk to them. It seems to me it's. Uh, it's a pretty low risk if there's a risk at all. It's yeah, well, we've, we've talked about that. I mean, it's more contagious, but usually, and this is just a generalization of viruses together, but usually when a virus mutates, become more contagious, they become less severe. Yeah. And we're seeing that with the Delta variant. It, I mean, we hear in the media the scare tactics of, oh, it's more contagious. Be, be scared. Go get your vaccine because it's more contagious. At the same time, so far, it has a 0.03% death rate that we've seen uh, in some of the stats that have been done in the UK and in the United States. So it's more contagious. Be cautious. Be careful. But it's not as deadly, And which COVID I didn't think was as deadly either. But so you still take precautions. But at the same time, it's not, you know, it's not killing 40% of the people that get it. That's true. And uh, and for those of us that have been vaccinated and that have had infection, frankly, I'm not worried about me at all with yeah. this Delta variant. It's just not a concern to mine. I mean, personal risk, I don't I don't feel any risk whatsoever. Sure. Uh, 
even if I was to get a secondary infection, I don't think it's going to be a serious matter for me because I have all that immunity in my body. It's just going to really combat that. So the reality is uh, for people who are very concerned about their health, they have some options. Yeah. One, options. one thing you and I do agree on is the key to this whole pandemic is it's, it has to make sure everyone's educated. Yes. And let's trust people to make decisions for themselves. And I've been saying that from the very beginning. Make your own decisions. You know, I if love you want to do this or that, by golly, I'll support you. But make when you, you're going to have the consequences of your decisions and I... You got to live with that, right? Free market. Personal responsibility and personal freedom comes hand in hand. What it's all about. Sedgwick County Commissioner Jim Howell. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Thanks, Andy. I love it. Always good. You guys got a lot of stuff going on, so we'll keep uh, posted and get you back on the show again here real soon. That does it for hour number one. Can't just talk here on the Big Talker KQAM. Lots more coming up. Hour two, Alan Cobb plus the... Uh, Alzheimer's Association for the state of Kansas. We'll talk with them as well for the second hour of Kansas Talk. Stay right here on KQAM. Welcome back into the program. Thanks for hanging out with us today here on a Saturday. Candace Talk, 316-721-8255, 316-721-TALK. If you want to join into the program, we'd love to hear from you. And with that, let's go right to the phone, shall we? Good morning. Who's this? This is Joe. Hey, Joe, what's going on, sir? How are we doing? Hey, doing very well. I know you were talking about uh, uh, the critical race theory, and I just wanted to touch base in the city of Wichita. There's a healthcare organization that promotes a Catholic healthcare organization that promotes systemic racism and that we are all racist by birth. And I just feel like they need to be called out and Catholic prisoners need to call out their leadership as well regarding critical race theory. And, and I just do not agree with it. And uh, I just wanted to bring that to. So critical race theory is coming to, it's, it's so weird to me because I mean, Candace was one of the leading trends for the civil rights movement in you know, in that time, and we've done a lot of work, and I think it, Candace is absolutely wonderful. Obviously, there's some patches of, uh, you know, work we still need to be done, but you're saying the critical race theory is coming to Candace and even here to Wichita. Yeah, it has been. It's been in for well over, you know, a couple of years, and, and they promote it. It comes out every week on the computer to the employees. And that. As in, and, as uh, in, how, what, like, what, uh, like emails or, you know, press releases, or what do they do? Emails emails and it's under the guise of equity and other things as well but the thing that gets my attention is the Mm. promotion of systemic racism that's really interesting my curiosity is when did we go from talking about equality for everyone to now you're just equity you're a piece of equity to the government and we want you to be equity uh when did we change the wording on this because that I, i don't understand the whole equity argument now i i agree with you 100 percent so and and uh I think that's all I want to add this morning, and I appreciate your your show. Hey, well, I appreciate it very much. I appreciate you listening, and have a great weekend. It's uh, great to talk to you. Interesting. So critical race theory coming to the Wichita area, not necessarily through the public education system, but through some of the businesses in the area as well. That is a question, and maybe we'll try and dive into that a little bit later for hour number two, is where did this equity conversation come from? Because you're not eco- we're not talking about equality anymore. We don't really care about equality. We're about equity. You are a piece of equity minority you are an equity just like you know the equity in your home you are of value with equity whose value and whose equity well the government's because you're a voter and you know you're just part of the system now and things great your equity come on 
You're not a human being, not an individual. You're not a soul or, you know, some person with individual thought, with character and with personality. No, you're just equity. Okay. And people have gotten on board with this? People would go along with that and be like, yes, I'm a piece of equity. Thank you very much. Wow. What a crazy world we live in. Hour number two, right around the corner. Got lots more to get to. We'll talk about critical race theory and Dan Bongino, National Talk Radio host. We have a fun story that kind of connects us a little bit, which is kind of cool. We'll talk about that and more for hour number two at Candace Talk. Stay here. This is Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier on the Big Talker KQAM. It is Kansas Talk. It is hour number two of Kansas Talk right here on the Big Talker, 1480 AM, 102.5 FM KQAM. Thanks for hanging out with us today for a Saturday morning. Appreciate it very much as we continue on trying to get you up and moving for the day. And that's what we do right here on the show each and every day. Thanks again to Central County Commissioner Jim Howell coming on the program last hour. Great to chat with him. And it's crazy to see all the shenanigans going on at the county level right now with the EMS issue, the shortage of workers. And it's an interesting conversation that he brought up regarding the size of government and what that size of government should actually look like with tax rates, government spending, yet competing with the private market. I am, you know me, I'm about as limited government as I could possibly get. We need to figure it out on the private level. But if we do have government jobs and they're you know, first responders sort of thing. We should, you know, be competitive to where people actually want to do that to take care of their local community, and we should take care of them appropriately in that sense. How that's done, that's up for the elected officials to actually do commonsensical things and for us to hold them accountable to decide. All right, we got lots more coming up this hour as we have the Alzheimer's Association from the state of Kansas. We'll chat with uh, Juliet coming up at the bottom of the hour to talk about what they're doing. If you know anybody, this is a horrible disease. If you know anybody that uh, deals with Alzheimer's or with dementia or with mental issues like that, can you become a caretaker? How do you take care of them? What are the signs if you see someone that may have that type of issue and what you can do during the summertime as well to keep them safe and what you can do to help with the continued research and understanding of the issue as well. We got that coming up. Plus, right now, we sat down with Alan Cobb, the Kansas Chamber of Commerce uh, for the state of Kansas just a few days ago to talk about the economy here in the state of Kansas. Where are we right now in the state of Kansas with our economy as the businesses begin to open up the labor shortage? We're still trying to end the additional COVID-19 unemployment benefits in the state. It's frustrating because Governor Kelly has not ended them yet, and here we are. We still have a labor shortage. I saw in Candace Works this week, we saw 50,000 jobs. 50,000 jobs in the state of Candace on CandaceWorks.com where you can get licensed, you can actually change careers, you can actually get educated, you can go and work on any type of job all over the state. While we have ridiculous amount of unemployment right now and we have people still on these unemployment benefits, if you noticed just a few days ago, I don't know if you received it or not, but the first child tax credit payment into your bank account, but it's not just a child tax credit. If you didn't pay into the system and have never received a child tax credit on your taxes in April when you file for them and you get that deducted off of what you actually owe, so you get some money back usually, or if you time it out just right, depending on however you do your taxes, that's not the case. People that haven't paid into that because they didn't make enough money, they're receiving this quote-unquote child tax credit, which means now 
it's not a child tax credit any longer based on the credit to your taxes that you pay in. It is now turned into the first step of the universal basic income to start off with families with children. So that way you become dependent on it and then you don't want to go back to work because you have an income coming in from the federal government. And the more children you have, then guess what? The more money you're going to be getting from the federal government. Now, right now, it's only supposed to go to the end of the year. How long do you think that's going to last? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm making $500 a month extra with the government. I was dependent on that. That was my grocery money. So how long is this labor shortage actually going to last? What are the issues and how the how's the economy going in the state of Kansas? We sat down with Alan Cobb, president and CEO of the Kansas Chamber of Commerce, just a few days ago, and this is what he had to say. Excited to have back on the president of the Kansas Chamber of Commerce, Mr. Alan Cobb. Alan, how are you, my friend? Good. How are you? Oh, it's doing good. It's good to talk to you again. It's been a little bit. How uh, Real quickly, before we get into all those details, how are we doing? We're now into July. The summertime's opened up. I think a lot of businesses are excited about summertime. Are we doing okay, and are we starting to come back as a state? Yeah, we actually, uh, we fared better than, than most states during COVID for, I think, a, couple, a variety of a couple of reasons. But there was a study recently that had Kansas as the 10th most resilient COVID state. And I think couple things. One is just our mix of industry was not um, as impacted as other states. Obviously, tourism, hospitality are not a huge part of the state economy. And I was surprised how many states that do have uh, that as a large part of their economy. Yes, you can think about Florida and Nevada, but virtually any state that has a coast, uh, east-west gulf, it's a, it's a decent part of the economy. And then states obviously like like uh, New York uh, and others, Massachusetts, because of Boston, it's tourism is a part of it. Obviously, um, manufacturing and ag are both, and financial services are probably three of the largest areas of the Kansas economy and, and weren't really impacted by COVID. Aviation definitely was, of course, but and Spirit had 737 issues prior to COVID, but um, I think Textron fared fairly well, all things considering, and then all the the suppliers. I think there's 500 some aerospace suppliers in Kansas. So I think that's that's part of it. Um, though though we, I think the the uh, stay at home orders were went too long in Kansas, but uh, they they didn't go as long as many other states. I mean, I, it's hard for me to believe that what in the last month California is having a debate about how to reopen. That's just crazy. <laughs> Where I think um, for the most part, Kansas outside of then you did have local issues, but Kansas was uh, I pretty much opened back up last summer. But with yeah, the COVID, outside of government regulations, COVID definitely impacted uh, people's uh, willingness to go to restaurants and uh, those kinds of things. And and for the part of the Kansas that was that is hospitality oriented, regardless of, of stay at home orders from the state or local, just the fear and everything of, of COVID definitely impacted. But we we've we fared fairly well. Um, I don't like using short-term data, or I don't. You don't want to put a huge emphasis on it. But in the um, first quarter of this year, Kansas was one of the top states in economic growth. But it's just one quarter, and so I, I really don't even like talking about monthly. Certainly, quarterly is a little sensitive, but monthly data is almost meaningless in my view. Sure. If you look at it, because it's it's a random thirty-day period. And that may or may not really be reflective 
of what's of what's happening. So I, I think there's uh, I think the other thing is just the 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 work ethic and the um, all just the uh, dogged determination of of Kansas employers and businesses that you know just kept kept things rolling. So, yeah, I mean we're uh, we're we're determined. I mean we want we don't want to give up. We want to keep fighting, and that's what I think we did. And we're I mean we're vigilant, which is why I think we fared out. So that's really good news. We did come out relatively better than other states, even with some of the mandates that went on from Governor Laura Kelly. Now that things are starting to lift up, I think we're going to see numbers continuously increase. The big problem that we've seen, though, as you know, is is of course this labor shortage. And you guys sent that letter to Governor Kelly with many small businesses uh, that signed on to that letter that wanted to support ending these COVID nineteen extra unemployment benefits we're just a couple months out from them expiring already but is that hindering what could be even better growth in the state it, it is it's it's uh it, it, it's it's not impacting everybody the same those that are receiving the extra benefits but i i still have a hard time understanding at this stage in covid what what really uh what, what's the justification for extra benefits on unemployment when our unemployment rates have dropped precipitously um, I think it's going to take analysts and, and data folks a year to probably sort through all of the impacts COVID had. But I think the United States is at a, a 25-year high of people quitting their jobs. Yeah. So you have, I think it was COVID a little bit of shock to the system, early retirements, people reevaluating their careers, deciding they want to go into something different because of, well, the economy fared fairly well with stimulus payments and everything else. I think some folks have the financial ability to take six months off and reevaluate their career. And while those things are happening, again, it's going to take some analysts a while to, to sort through it. But the um, household wealth, the personal balance sheets, and I'm not just talking about of the wealthy, increased a ton during COVID. And some of it was, again, government stimulus payments, People were uh, got a little worried. Their saving rates went up. See, we're not spending money on vacations and travel and eating out. A little bit of, I suppose, delivery. Um, and I, it, I think that's that's all having a positive impact. But again, it, it also impacts the the workforce. That yeah. uh, folks. Then um, there is pri- there is a pressure on on wages, which is good good for the workers. And, and it's not necessarily bad for the employers if those wages are reflective of the value that employees is bringing. So um, I, we're, we had a, a workforce quality and quantity issue prior to COVID. COVID has probably exacerbated it. And, and then uh, some of its demographics where birth rates are down and, and they have been down for a while. So there's not as many people entering the workforce and uh, her, I, I'm going to have to track down the exact number, but there's a high number of high school graduates who not only are they not going to higher ed, whether it's college or, or tech or whatever, they're not going to the workforce. Mm. And I, literally staying at home in their in the basement playing video games. I know that sounds <laughs> a little flippant, but that again, some things, uh, maybe these were trends that COVID uh, uh, accelerated. I'm not sure, but I think all across the country, and it's not just Kansas, that workforce quality and quantity is going to be a major issue, and states that can figure it out the best are going to fare the best. 
Yeah, well, it's going to be an ongoing concern. I mean, you already mentioned it with some of the labor issues or some of the wage issues as well. I mean, the other side of the political aisle is trying to use this labor shortage as saying it's not a labor shortage, it's a wage issue. And if we would raise minimum wage up, then that way we would want to get back on track and go back to work as opposed to staying home with the unemployment benefits. So this is a great opportunity for us to use this as a political movement to increase wages, which is going to harm those young children that don't have any experience, that don't have any work work history that are trying to gain experience on minimum wage jobs with minimal experience or understanding, that's going to kill all of those jobs, and it's only going to make it more tough for small business across the state. No no question. And I think the whole thing about, oh, it's a wage problem is a bit, a bit of a fallacy in that, um, in that the wages need to reflect the value the employee, employee is bringing. And I... I Having a job is a good thing at, at whatever wage. Not every job is equal, but it's it's definitely not. Um, I think that's a tiny, tiny part of it, and it, yeah, it is a bit of a, a talking point from some on those on the left without a lot of data to to support it. Yeah. On the other side of it, let's talk about some of the industry in the state of Kansas. We're talking with Alan Cobb, uh, Kansas Chamber of Commerce. Let's talk about some of the industry coming in and some of the changes in the workforce as well. COVID obviously has led a lot of people to go and work from home as opposed to going into the office. Is that going to have an impact on maybe infrastructure in the state? Is that going to have an impact on on businesses or different uh, office suites that we have? Uh, and maybe just the whole dynamic of work and with new industry coming in, with tech industry coming in. We hear that in Wichita here all the time now, along with aviation and some of the stuff happening. Are we going to see maybe a change in how the workforce actually handles their daily duties? Yes, and you've already seen it. I, what I don't know is how long does it, it – is this permanent? I would guess some of it is permanent um, I, I as far as – some ability on flexibility of working from home occasionally, et cetera. Some of that was already happening because of technology and iPhones and Androids. People are checking their mail, email when they wake up at 630. That was not happening 20 years ago. And so the pro- productivity levels have, have increased. Sometimes that's a, you know, sometimes we can all work too much, but I think it's yet to be seen on, on the impact of complete impact on, on commercial real estate, I, I think I saw a major call center in Wichita months and months ago said they are never coming back to the office. Everybody's going to work remotely. Yeah. And how many of how many of those how how many companies are going to do that? There's obviously a value of human interaction personally um, on collaboration, and I think conference calls are not as good as Zoom calls. Although we all have too many Zoom calls, so there are ways to communicate remotely that are a lot more effective than what we were doing just a few years ago, but that will, um, they'll have an impact now on the manufacturing side or, uh, let's just say ag, you can't make an airplane in your garage. <laughs> and so that's not going to apply to everybody. You can't, uh, well, I guess we do have driverless tractors. So technically we probably could combine or, or, uh, uh, harvest a field or plow a field from your, from your living room at the farmhouse. But, <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of things that just, they still have to be done personally. Interesting. Um, Kansas actually has quite a few significant sized engineering firms, Wichita, Topeka, Kansas city area. And what I've heard from some of them, engineers are, some engineers are kind of like scientific artists and they don't like to be bothered. They were, they were more productive, not being in the office and having those drop in conversations where someone says, yeah, you got a minute. And you know, 
an hour later, you're back to your job. So I do think some of it's permanent, how broad that's going to be as far as remote work. Don't know. Um, That's a potential advantage for Kansas. Um, It can cut both ways, but if uh, there's someone who wants to work for some kind of tech firm that just isn't in Kansas, let's say their heart's set on Microsoft, maybe you could still live in Scott City or Goddard or Newton and work for those world companies living here. Now, that's the same challenge though Kansas employers may have, uh, or they, they'll be hiring people remote that maybe whatever reason they don't want to move to Kansas or they want to stay close to their family. So it kind of cuts both ways, but it is, I think it's probably potentially better than worse sure. as far as uh, the impact on on remote. Well, it's crazy how technology is changing everything, as you mentioned, between aviation and agriculture and all of it. I do like some of the industry coming in as well with some of the warehouses even to create more jobs in the Kansas City area, the Park City area here with uh, some of the Amazon warehouses creating some of the more of those jobs as well, which is kind of neat to see. Last question before we let you go, Alan Cobb, Kansas Chamber of Commerce. Let's talk about taxation we see at the federal level right now. The uh, Biden administration, the Democrats trying to raise taxes on corporations, you know, those evil corporations that make all the jobs and money, you know, for a lot of the country here in the state of Kansas. Obviously, Democrat Kelly has uh, tried to push for some of those same things as well. We did relatively well with the budget that was passed in the state legislature this year. But taxation wise, are we doing okay? Will businesses be able to come back or are they are they going to have to see another uh, bit of pressure on them after the state budget that was passed and after COVID where she wanted to raise some of those taxes? Well, I think uh, Kansas, it depends on the tax. Our sales taxes is high. Uh, we're seventh or eighth in the country in combined state and local taxation. We're, it depends on the, the bracket. We're somewhere in the middle-ish on income tax. Property taxes depends on the property, whether it's commercial, industrial, residential, tends to be high. And uh, property taxes are almost exclusively driven by local government. And so you got a local government issue in Kansas where property tax revenue is well outpaced population inflation. But our state coffers, we have the largest ending balance in state's history. And I think we need to start looking at some reductions in rates. And our corporate income tax rate is particularly high, higher, it's at 7% higher compared to the country than our income tax rates for individuals. And I think we have to start taking a look at that. I know because of the whole brouhaha over the brownback tax cuts, that causes some people some pause, but we're not talking, I don't think we need to look at going to zero. Let's just lower it so we're competitive or best in the region. And I think we've got the the dollars to uh, to do it. And I think there's, uh, I think legislative leaders have begun to talk about that too, both sales and, and income. And there was a major property tax reform bill passed this year yeah. that creates a little bit more accountability and trans, uh, transparency for the local government officials who are approving budgets that cause property tax revenues to go up. And so we'll see over time, and it'll probably take a couple of years um, before we um, we see the positive impact. But I'm fairly fairly certain it will have a, a positive impact. Sure. Sales tax online, the online sales tax we push through as well. Is that going to have a big impact on the industries around here? Uh, I, it just puts them on a level playing field with out-of-state retailers. I don't know that because most states are doing this, if not all. And so from a competitive standpoint, it uh, probably won't make, make much of a difference. And anybody who buys things online, um, a lot of the online retailers have been collecting sales tax for a while 
anyway, so uh, I think for smaller Kansas retailers, it just puts them on a level playing field uh, with um, with their, their out of state. Uh, competitors. So, yeah. uh, but I'd like to see. I think I think revenue is coming in higher from the online sales tax than was anticipated. Well, let's use those dollars to would be kind of buying down the income tax rate. Sure. I'm sorry, the sales tax rate rather. So, if you've got more money coming in, and let's use that to to maybe our goal should be middle of the pack for income tax, or I'm sorry for sales tax, rather than being um, rather than being uh, top ten. But that's not a good thing to be top ten in. <laughs> no, we don't want to see a sigh on some of those lists like that. I love it. Uh, Alan Cobb, Ch- Kansas Chamber of Commerce. Keep up the great work, my friend. I know the economy, as you mentioned, is coming back. It's good news. We appreciate that. So keep up that fight. Let's chat again here real soon. Sounds good. Call anytime. There it is. That again was Alan Cobb, president and CEO of the Kansas Chamber of Commerce. We appreciate his time very much. A lot of great information. Optimistic about the state of Kansas, but yet a little concerning all at the same time. We'll take a break. Lots more coming up here for a Saturday here on Candace Talk on the Big Talker, 1480 AM, 102.5 FM, KQAM. As we power through our number two of Candace Talk. Stay here. Welcome back into the program. Candace Talk here on the Big Talker, KQAM. Almost uh, bottom of the hour already. Goes by way too fast. When we come back, we'll talk with Juliet. We'll talk with the Candace uh, Alzheimer's Association. It's kind of an important issue there. We'll learn a little bit more about uh, Alzheimer's. We'll learn about what you can do to check the signs of, how to be a caretaker, and more. Kind of an interesting conversation there. We'll do that as we wrap up today for a Saturday here on Candace Talk. Lots more coming up on the program. Don't go anywhere right here on the Big Talker, KQAM. Stay here. Back into Candace Talk right here on the Big Talker, 1480 AM, 102.5 FM, It is a Saturday morning. Thanks for hanging out with us today on your weekend. As always, let's shift gears a little bit as we always talk about ways that we can help our community. And that's what we're really all about, isn't it? Trying to help out the community and excited to have on here as we talk about ways that we can help certain individuals that may be struggling, that may be sick, that ways that we can make sure they're okay during the summertime and the heat during the pandemic and what we can do to be aware of some of the issues going on as we have the Kansas State Director of Communications for the Alzheimer's Association here on the program with us here, Juliet Bradley. Juliet, how are you today? I am well. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. I really appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you coming on the program. First off, I'd, I've i been vaguely kind of sort of around individuals growing up uh, that have had Alzheimer's, but for those that may not be familiar, what exactly is the disease and how does it affect people? Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. If you think of dementia as the umbrella and Alzheimer's as a kind of dementia underneath it, that's kind of the best way to explain it. Alzheimer's is really 60 to 70 percent of all dementia is Alzheimer's. So it is the most popular kind of Alzheimer's. And it affects more than 6 million Americans and 55,000 Kansans. So 
we are trying our best to make sure that those individuals and their caregivers know that the Alzheimer's Association is here for you 24-7 with a helpline. And we are offering those services free of charge with virtual support groups and in-person as we start to get back into the community for support groups and education as well. That's really good to have some not just educational support, but actually understanding kind of what's going on. And I'm sure that this has been kind of hindered over the last year with COVID-19. Talk about how you guys have been able to manage throughout the last year with the pandemic, taking care of individuals, educating more individuals on training to properly take care of people that may have this disease. I mean, how was the last year with the virus that affected you guys? Well, as you know, we all had to do that wonderful word of pivoting. Um, and individuals who have Alzheimer's and their caregivers, they don't pivot because they're still caregiving every day and going through Alzheimer's every day. So we are the ones that are pivoting, trying to continue to reach them in virtual opportunities for support groups. Those people still need our support probably now more than ever. So virtual support groups has been a way that we've been able to do that and virtual education. We offer a really great core group of classes, including things like understanding Alzheimer's and dementia, or legal and financial things to think about, effective strategy for communication, lots of different things that caregivers need us for. All of those classes, whether they're in-person or virtual and support groups are all free of charge. And that is the biggest message I have for individuals out there is if you have Alzheimer's or you know someone who needs some support, please do not hesitate to call out to us on our 24-7 helpline, 800-272-3900. It's available to you every day, all day. Good, good. I love that. Now, uh, just to kind of throw you here, I don't know if you have this information on hand or not, but do you know the percentage of maybe elderly individuals or people that have Alzheimer's or dementia? Because I, I know it's a major issue. I know that it's one of those where people have researched it for a long time, but yet we don't have quite a clear understanding or even medication that can really battle this. It's still just one of those that's devastating for people. How many people actually have this? Is this a growing concern across the population? Completely. A uh, very big concern. And what we do know is that the percentage is escalating. You know, what we do know about other diseases, too, is between the years of 2000 and 2019, deaths from a disease like heart disease decreased by 7.3% and Alzheimer's deaths increased 145%. Wow. So it is always increasing. We are making sure that people understand it's okay to talk about it. That's the biggest concern here. We want to kick the stigma to the curb, so to speak, and get people talking, get people uh, coming in, asking for support, meeting with other individuals that have similar situations um, so that they can be helped um, by that connection to other people who have similar uh, scenarios in their life. Sure. Talk about uh, individuals that maybe they know a family member that may have it, but they're not quite sure. How can you get tested? What are some of the symptoms to look forward to? Is it just the, the memory loss? Is it not being able to have some hand-eye coordination? Is it kind of the irrationality or very emotional roller coasters that they go through? Yeah. What are some of the symptoms that you could actually see if, if you're concerned someone may have this? So the Alzheimer's Association has something called the 10 warning signs of Alzheimer's disease. And the reason I love this list is because it tells you 10 things that are uh, the items that you should look for or that you should consider if you think you're having cognitive issues. And it tells you what is normal and what is not. So, for example, memory loss that disrupts your life. Okay, 
every once in a while, I forget a person's name or I forget an appointment, but I remember them in just a few minutes. But if you have Alzheimer's or if you have some kind of dementia or cognitive decline, you're not going to be able to remember those even with an aid. So you ask yourself, is this normal or if it is not? You know, another issue would be like the difficulty completing familiar tasks. Yeah, according to me and my kids, I don't really know how to record a TV show very well. <laughs> but if I had some kind of dementia, I would never be able to figure it out. Or I'd be very confused with something just as simple as a recipe or a grocery list. So there is always a normal side of these things and a not normal side of these things. And that's the biggest thing is to remember is Alzheimer's is not normal aging. It is not something that we should be experiencing as we get older. So it's definitely a big difference between actually having Alzheimer's, not remembering a, a lot of stuff, and then just being blonde. Because I'm blonde and I have a lot of those moments and I forget a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I think that sometimes we can think of something as as easy as, where did you put your keys? Okay, so yeah, I remember, oh yeah, I left them in the other room. Okay, that's normal. But if you open up the freezer and your keys are in there, then there's probably something going on. Yeah, something a little bit worse. And that, that 10 signs of Alzheimer's is found at ALZ.org. Just wanted to mention that. Good, yeah, absolutely. We're talking with Julia Bradley, Kansas State Director of Communications for the Alzheimer's Association in Kansas. You can find them online at ALZ.org. Let's talk about the summertime now, the heat, uh, trying to take care of individuals, If whether you're a caretaker or you just know somebody in your family or neighborhood that actually has this. What are some of the tips and what can we do to make sure that they are safe, they are taken care of? Because if we're forgetting things, like that, then obviously that they could potentially could be putting themselves in harm's way without even realizing it. Exactly. And extreme heat can be really um, an impactful thing on anybody. But when you combine that with someone who has cognitive decline, then you really kind of have a recipe for potential disasters. So we want to make sure that individuals are doing things very simply like making a plan. You know, if you know someone who has Alzheimer's disease or some other kind of dementia, please make a plan to check on them regularly. Pay attention specifically at night. We all have heard the term sundowning. So in the late afternoon, when it starts to get a little bit of, of darkness, not right now necessarily, but later in the evening, things can get more confusing. So like nighttime is difficult. We want to stay hydrated. We want to stay out of the on as much as possible. And we ask that you prepare an emergency kit. And that emergency kit should include things like important documents, legal papers, like who has the power of attorney of this person, some supplies of medication, if they have a medic alert or some, some identification in case they should wander. We want to make sure that that is in there as well. Um, a picture of them, like who is this person? You know, we want to make sure that we can identify them. We want their physician's name. Those are some things that you and I might not put in our emergency kit but we want to make sure that that's in the emergency kit of someone who has dementia. Yeah, that's really great information. Uh, at the same time, is there a limit or what po at what point, if you have a family member you're trying to take care of, that you just can't do it on your own and maybe you can't become a, a professional caretaker, you can't go through some of the training? I mean, is there a point where you need a professional caretaker to take care of an individual with these diseases? Or is it pretty much if you kind of have the basic understandings and, you, and you're on top of it that you really can't take care of these people long term? That's going to completely different. Whoever you are and whoever I am, um, we're going to make those decisions differently. Mm. So you may be able to take care of somebody much longer than I. 
um, and vice versa. So uh, the one thing I want to say about that is there is no shame. If you decide that that is not something that you can accomplish, that you can do, that is perfectly fine. And the, the trained dementia specialists at our 24-7 helpline are there for that reason. If you call them, they can help you decide if now is the right time. They can help you decide where you might want to consider looking to place your loved one. The Alzheimer's Association does not endorse these places, but what we do do is say, here are your options. We want to make sure that you know what your options are so that if you choose to be um, a, a caregiver in your home or in that person's home, that we can offer you the resources that you need. And if you choose to place your loved one, that we can offer you the resources that you need for that as well. I love it. I love it. Great stuff. Alzheimer's Association of Candace. Visit them at alz.org. Last question before we let you go, but has there have you heard of any progress on research? Have you heard of any progress on medication or preventative measures or things that people can do to try and stop this disease? I know we know uh, we don't know much about it. There's not any way to prevent it or actually make it go back if we do end up getting this and it's kind of a sad deal, but are, is there any progress in this field of research trying to figure this kind of disease out? There's huge progress. Um, up until right before June 7th, we only had a few medications that were out there that were treating only symptoms. But as of June 7th, the FDA did approve aducanumab, which is a drug, the first drug that is a drug therapy that's actually treating the biology of the disease since 2003. We are very excited about this drug. Um, there's a lot to, to learn about it, but we are excited because it is possibly going to be able to give individuals more time, you know, more time to create those memories, more time to be with their loved ones, more time to be able to experience life. So in answer to your question, those kinds of things are happening because of clinical trials. Clinical trials are extremely important. I encourage anybody to go to ALZ.org slash trial maps to learn if you could possibly be part of a clinical trial. And here's something you may not know. You can be a healthy volunteer and, and offer your services for trial match. You don't have to be an individual that has Alzheimer's. So we believe that when a cure is found for this disease, it will be because of a clinical trial. So we encourage you to be part of one. I love it. Clinical trials are huge for a lot of these types of medications. Julia Bradley, Kansas State Director of Communications for the Alzheimer's Association in Kansas. Visit them online, alz.org uh, for the website. And on that, again, that 24-7 helpline is 800-272-3900, 800 272 3900. Julia, I appreciate the time so much and all the great information. Keep up the fight on your guys' end. We'd love to get you back on the show again here real soon. Thank you so much. Welcome back into Kansas Talk here on the Big Talker, 1480 AM, 102.5 FM, KQAM. It is a Saturday. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Thanks again to Juliet coming on the program from the Kansas Alzheimer's Association. Really interesting information. We have never really sat down and chatted about that, but uh, golly, I tell you what, that honestly, probably one of my deepest, darkest fears and paranoia of all time is to not remember who I am and what the heck's going on. And I know that that's prevalent. Now, I have heard rumors that you can actually limit that ability by smoking cigars. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'll do anything it can to make sure that you're healthy. As long as you continue with the brain teasers, you think deeply, you're an intelligent individual and an intellect, and you keep that brain functioning, you don't let it 
kind of like that muscle, that muscle memory, that muscle fatigue. You don't let it just kind of get lazy. Then you have a way better chance, at least from what the stats show, of actually not having any type of dementia or Alzheimer's or that sort of mental incapacity as you get older. So keep that brain sharp. Think deeper. And that usually means as well, vote Republican. Ah, see, see what we did there? See what we did there? That's called a joke. And uh, at least think a little bit deeper than those bumper sticker arguments. I'm really, truly, honestly, you want to look at it at a grander issue? I'm really scared that my generation, the millennial generation, it's all about social media, the little bumper sticker argument. You, you know, you can't think past eight seconds. We have an attention span of eight to 12 seconds. And my generation already, as 20, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, maybe early 40s now, or as we're getting up into that age there, that I really, truly, honestly think my generation is probably going to have one of the worst of all generations with the most amount of people having mental issues with uh, dementia or Alzheimer's because we don't think in long-term things. We sh- we think in short little spurts. The character tweets on a Twitter or a Facebook, you, you can't really think about anything or hold attention any longer than that. That's kind of odd, and that scares me. That scares me. So a little worried about that. I want to keep the mind sharp and keep you thinking, keep you intelligent, look a little bit deeper at some of those issues. All right, wrap it up. We got just a few minutes left of the program. I do want to touch on something, though, and I got to admit I'm kind of torn on this issue. I don't know how to quite respond to it, and this was about a week or so ago, but Governor Kelly, now most of the 95% of the time, disagree with Governor Kelly. You know that. I know that. She's not really the sharpest crayon in the box. She's really not, but it's the truth, and we need to be aware of it. But there's something that she did when she was here in the Wichita area just a week or so ago, as she signed Senate Bill 127. And I'm torn. I like the idea, yet I don't like the idea. I think it causes more complications while it tries to help individuals, but maybe does it in the wrong way or helps them in the wrong way. I don't know. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Among provisions that they signed with Senate Bill 127 that amends driver's license laws in the state of Kansas. And what it does, according to the Kansas City Star, it allows Kansans with suspended driver's license to drive to work and school while paying off their fines. Instead of just having a suspended license, you have out, out, out you know, uh, uh, outsourced dues, you can't pay your bills. Uh, so you can't drive because it's suspended. So you can't go to work to make the money so that way you can pay off the fines. Uh, I get that concept, but it allows Kansans with suspended driver's license to drive to work and drive to school while paying off fines. It also waives the $25 application fee for uh, restricted driver's privileges. According to the Kansas Department of Revenue, the estimated more than 213,000 Kansans have suspended license with 70% of those that are related to issues paying the fines or the court fees. So obviously we have a financial problem here, which is what I don't really get with government intrusion when they try to punish you. It's, you know, you you speed, you know, wear your seatbelts. You do something, oh, we're just going to fine you. You got to go show up to court and you got to pay the fine. Okay, is that real? I mean, I get it. Financial punishment is something to really make you, oh, I can't afford that $200 bill. I'm going to make sure not to do that again. But when it racks up, number one, you're a fool because fool me, you know, you shouldn't be committing something more than once because that's just common sense and how you abide by the rule of law. So it's ultimately came down to you making those mistakes. Don't drive drunk. Don't drive under the influence. Don't drive with your cell phone. Drive with your seatbelt on. Don't speed. Don't drive too aggressive. I mean, it's obviously common sense. It's hard sometimes. Remember, I'm, you're talking to a guy here that has extreme road rage in cases because I have a very short fuse on that. I don't know why. I'm a nice guy. I love everybody. I get really frustrated behind the wheel because people drive stupid. <laughs> Don't be that person. But I get it. 
if you have a lot of different fees and your driver license is suspended because you've uh, committed wrongdoings on the road so many times and you can't afford it, it's kind of hard to pay them off when you don't have a job. Kind of like the banking institution. Same thing. I worked in banking, as you know, and you have people that overdraw their bank account, so then the bank puts a fee on it. And I'm telling you, if you don't have the money for the stuff that you tried to purchase in the first place, which is you, and that's really stupid, don't overdraw your bank account. Be a little more financially responsible. Take a fiscal class if you have to. Something. I don't really care, but good golly, do something. If you're at a, if you can't pay those bills, then how are you going to be able to afford the fee that they put on top of it? It just kind of adds to the uh, burden that you have to take care of. If you can't handle the first burden, how are you going to handle the second burden? So I'm kind of curious on that. This is kind of the same thing. I get it. Let them go to work. Let them make the money. Let them pay that off. At the same time, when it says that they can go to work and they can go to school, how do you know that that's where they're going? And is this, is this going to lead to another law enforcement issue to where we make these obscure ridiculous rules and then law enforcement like we talked with police chief gordon ramsey last week is this just going to make it more difficult for them that uh, where are you going well, i'm going to work are you really going to work are you really because i don't know where you're going where do you live where do you work are we gonna have to like gps these people how are we gonna know where exactly they're going obviously if they broke the rules numerous times to get in the part where they have a suspended driver's license i don't know if they follow the rules necessarily we need to find ways to give them opportunities to pay things. Absolutely. Is this the way to do it? I, I don't know. I'm conflicted. We'll talk more about that next week. We'll get your thoughts on that one. All right. Wrapping up the show today. That's it. Back at it on Monday with the voice of reason. Back at it for Candace Talk again next week. Got a heck of a good show lined up for you next week. Talking about some holistic health issues and more. Joe Pags live with the weekend coming up right after this here on the Big Talker KQAM. I'm Andy Hoosier. We'll see you on the radio.